Welcome to Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I'm joined by Dr. Donna Ryan, co-chair of the latest NIH-sponsored guidelines on the evaluation and treatment of obesity. She is past president of the Obesity Society and has been investigator on many key trials, including the DASH trial and the DPP trial. Dr. Ryan, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, John. So how much of a problem is obesity in the United States? Well, currently, if you use the the criteria of a BMI 30 or higher, it's nearly 35% of the population. What's even more alarming is that extreme obesity, that is a BMI 40 or higher, is occurring in about 6% of the population. And it's not just body size that concerns us. It's the the fact that obesity really drives many of the chronic diseases that are that are filling physicians' offices. So, for example, type 2 diabetes, currently 14% of the population is diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And a big driver of that is obesity. So over what years do you think that this has really kind of taken off for? It's really interesting. Um, you know, we did, we've done these national surveys Across the United States, a representative sample uh, across the U.S., many thousands of people, like 50,000, 75,000 people, called the NHANES surveys. And the, the rates of obesity were fairly stable until the survey that was done beginning in 1988 and ending in 1992. And at that point, we saw a major uptick, and it's gone upward since. We think over the last few years it may be leveling off uh, in terms of the of the obesity category, BMI 30 and up, but it doesn't appear to be uh, leveling off for that extreme obesity, BMI 40 and up. So as a primary care physician, how well do myself and my brethren identify obesity in our patients in the office? Not very well. The electronic health record, at any rate, mandates that you get a BMI on every patient at every visit. It's part of the core measures that are supposed to be there. What's happening is that physicians are not taking this information and using it to counsel patients. So roughly only about, I think the latest sort of surveys are that only about half of primary care physicians are actually doing any weight counseling whatsoever. So it's sitting there on the EMR telling me someone has a BMI of 33, but I'm not addressing it. Exactly. How does obesity in its own right lead to disease in our patients? Well, you know, we used to think that fat was just an inert storage area for extra calories might be useful at some time to us. But now we know that fat is an active endocrine organ, and it's the source of many prothrombotic, pro-inflammatory products. And so it's really sort of this adverse profile of lipotoxicity that really drives the comorbidities. One good surrogate for assessing how lipotoxic, how adverse these body fat stores are is the waist circumference because, of course, we know that visceral adiposity correlates with a fat profile that really produces lots of adverse health effects. So waist circumference is a pretty good quick measure of whether you're likely to get in trouble metabolically from excess body fat. You know, fat that's stored on the hips and thighs is 
not troublesome whatsoever. It's it's really fat that's it in the abdomen, visceral fat depots, and also fatty infiltration of organs like liver and muscle. So you would recommend in my patients who are overweight that I should do a BMI on them, or I should do a waist circumference on them, excuse me. What would be the best way to do that? You know, um, we really recommend a waist circumference as, as, as you need to think about it as a risk factor. And so you want to do it in individuals between a BMI of 25 and 35 because it really adds another important additional piece of information. Within that overweight category, BMI 25 to 30, some individuals are going to get in trouble. Other individuals are going to be healthy, and the waist circumference is a very good predictor of adverse consequences from uh, uh, excess body fat. So you measure the waist with the patient standing, can be in a gown. You stand to the patient's side. You take your tape measure and roll it out. Don't roll it out around the patient, but roll it out first. And then with one hand, bring it around and grab it with the other and then measure it. You do it. You want to do it right below the lower border of the, of the ribs and right above the iliac crest. So are there clear medical benefits for having my patients lose weight? Absolutely. And the amazing thing is it doesn't take a lot of weight loss to really produce major health benefits. So you know that lipotoxic profile? Well, if you lose 10% of your body weight, you're going to lose 30% of your visceral adipose tissue. So these fat stores that really have the worst metabolic profile, those go first. So even a little bit of weight loss can help help patients. It's not necessary to get patients to a normal BMI or to a normal body weight. We can get a lot of benefit with weight loss in the 5 to 10% range. Of course, more weight loss is better, but 5 to 10% is more achievable for our patients. So that patient I have that's 100 pounds overweight if I can get a 5 to 10% weight loss in them, I should really be thrilled and really should kind of applaud them for that effort, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. I think we really need to look at our goals being targeted health goals and not necessarily body size goals. So the 5 to 10% weight loss can translate into reductions um, in fasting glucose, improvements in glycemic control, better A1C levels, maybe even getting patients off of insulin, um, reducing their hypertension medications, better blood pressure control, um, better lipid profiles, sometimes even lesser requirements for lipid medications. So for the average clinician in the average office across the United States, we have someone who has a BMI of 30. Where should we go next? I think the next step is the waist circumference because what we really want to know is know more about that patient's health risk profile. And then we want to look at the standard cardiovascular risk measures and cardiometabolic risk measures, so that your standard assessment for risk. And then you're going to put that together and come up with a plan, and the plan is going to be trying to address adverse risk factors through weight management. So you've really dedicated your life to this. Um, is there is there any particular diet I should be telling our patients to use one or another? You know, when we did the um, the guidelines, we worked for five years on this, and we, we reviewed the literature and used the most stringent methodology and had one critical question about, about this, this exactly. What is the best diet? 
And there is no magic diet. We looked at 17 different diets. They were all capable of producing um, weight loss, and no one appeared to be superior to any of the others. Sometimes diets will exclude major food groups or major macronutrients, and those appear to produce weight loss, but they do it by really reduction in energy intake. It's really a calorie reduction. So when we put people on the Atkins diet, they're avoiding all carbohydrates. And what turns out is that they're probably eating about 1,400 kilocalories per day on average. So when you when you eliminate major food groups, you really do reduce caloric intake. So it's one of the strategies that's okay. It's perfectly acceptable to count calories and hit a targeted calorie goal. What we usually do is give a, a calorie goal for women of about 1,200 to 1,500 calories a day, depending on their starting weight. And for men, about 1,500 to 1,800 calories. You're listening to Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I'm joined by Dr. Don Orion, who's co-chair of the latest NIH-sponsored guidelines in the evaluation and treatment of obesity, and we're talking about obesity management in primary care. So is there an easy way to figure out, because you said there's different calories for people based on what their size is, is there any kind of trick I can use to kind of figure out what that number should be? We have a rule of thumb, and that is that basal energy requirements are going to be about 10 calories per pound. So for a person who is 200 pounds, that's going to be about 2,000 calories. That's their basal energy requirements. If they're very physically active, which is unusual, you would make that a bit higher. And then you would subtract from that a reasonable deficit. So you, you would want in the range of 500 or 750 calories from that. We have some very fancy ways of predicting what a person's energy requirements are, some really fine algorithms developed by the World Health Organization and also one called the Miffin St. Jar. But the rule of thumb works very well in your practice. So 10 calories per pound, that's what a person's basal energy requirements are going to be. And then you subtract from that. Is that the same for men and women? Well, it is the same for men and women. Uh, men tend to be a little bigger than women do, um, and so that's why when we, when we our usual calorie goals for men are are just a bit higher than they are for women. Just because they're bigger. Just because they're bigger. And the guidelines then talk about lifestyle interventions. You know, it's kind of a, a, a global term. Can you give me some kind of practical things what lifestyle interventions besides kind of shaving 500 calories off your diet should be? We use the term lifestyle intervention because we really want patients to be working towards a pattern of diet and physical activity that can be maintained over the lifetime. So that's a sort of a lifestyle. We want them to be in a lifestyle that will really support a reduced weight and not go back to their old habits, which is going to really drive weight regain. So when we did the guidelines, we we called a comprehensive lifestyle intervention, one that did both diet, physical activity, and behavioral therapy, which is really about learning the techniques um, to enforce those diet and physical activity habits. I mean, and we certainly live in kind of this kind of smartphone kind of web population. Are there apps? Are there programs? The My Fitness Pals? Are there any things that you guys looked into to say, boy, we've we validated this and it works a little bit better? Well, so far, the 
The gold standard is 14 counseling sessions face-to-face in six months, followed by at least a year of continuous follow-up. But given that the society changes that are going on around this, we also acknowledge the importance of trying to use those things. And we, we gave an endorsement of telephonic counseling or electronically delivered counseling. The weight loss in the studies that we reviewed was a bit less than with that traditional face-to-face methodology. But not all patients have access to -to face-to-face counseling. So in those instances, it's perfectly acceptable to recommend counseling for weight loss either by telephone or electronically on the web. Did CMS recently change that they now consider obesity a disease? Well, yes. Uh, The NIH considers obesity a disease. The FDA considers obesity a disease. And you know, the AMA, the World Health Organizations, and many of our professional societies. I think what the, the importance of CMS is that they have given a nod to reimbursing primary care physicians for weight management counseling. So they've actually indicated that they will reimburse for a primary care provider to deliver up to 14 counseling sessions in a year. Really pretty good. So during those 14 counseling sessions, if you're kind of kind of coaching me on the things I should be trying to cover in my 14 sessions, what would you be some of the things you'd like to see me doing as a good primary care clinician? Yeah, I think you you know what your your goal is to really teach patients the skills to result in that changed lifestyle. And so the first thing is self-monitoring. So we help patients learn to weigh themselves, to monitor their food intake and physical activity. So we like people to keep diaries. And that's particularly helpful during the active weight loss phase. After patients lose weight and are stable, then I think the focus really is on frequent weighing because it's quite tedious to do these food diaries and physical activity diaries. So that's one thing. Then we want to do what we call environmental control and that is we want to make sure that we have an environment that encourages healthy eatings. We make people clear out their pantries. We make them develop a plan for what they're going to do in the restaurant when they're exposed to lots of uh, choices that may not be the best. You know, So we want to make the environment more supportive of this healthy li- lifestyle and other measures such as that. You know, when we're, we're trying to help people get sober, we talk about changing people, places, and things. Uh-huh. It's not quite as easy for eating, correct? You know, no. the, the people can stay out of the bar, but they probably can't stay out of the kitchen, correct? Yeah, there are some similarities between addiction and, and food addiction, but it's, it, the treatment of it can't be the same because you can't totally avoid food. Now, for, for my patient who is is very overweight and I, I should shoot for that five to ten percent and and then when they achieve that ten percent do I keep trying to make another five or ten percent or what should be kind of my goal if I have that patient that I counsel perfectly who really listens who we act as a team and we get that ten percent weight loss where do I go from there you know um, I, I'm happy at five or ten percent weight loss but I always negotiate a goal with the patient My job is to tell them what it's going to take for them to achieve that goal. So a lower goal really requires um, less time and effort. And a higher weight loss goal really is a much bigger commitment in terms of time and, and effort. So patients will say, 
oh, doctor, I, want, I need to lose 100 pounds. And I can, I, I, my response is, well, let me tell you what it would take to do that. And I think they all understand um, from watching these television shows about extreme weight loss, uh, how time-consuming and what an enormous effort that is. But we can achieve um, 5 to 10% weight loss within, you know, people's ordinary lives. We all have competing interests besides our diets. We, we, you know, we have families, we have friends, we have jobs. And so I think it's the goal has to be uh, achievable. So I'm all about an achievable goal. If people want to lose more, I don't discourage them. And some people are willing to put time and effort into it, and I'm delighted when they do. But I think it's um, we shouldn't discourage patients who are not able to do that because there are so many benefits with that 5 to 10% weight loss. So the guidelines now mention use of medications uh, for, for patients. Do they really work? We're very lucky. We have um, three new medications that are approved by our very conservative Food and Drug Administration that are out on the market in just the last two years. Yes, they work. They work along with a diet. You know, if you prescribe the medication without a, a diet and, and lifestyle intervention, you're likely to get maybe 4 or 5% weight loss, just the effect of the medication alone. But if you combine it with counseling around diet and physical activity, you can get some really great results. So it makes patients more likely to achieve more weight loss and to get the benefits of, of weight loss. All of these medications work through appetite. So that what they're doing is they're really in, enforcing patient adherence to um, their intention to follow a diet of reduced energy intake. So for our listeners, a lot of them have been practicing long enough to have seen a lot of uh, weight loss medicines come on the market and been pulled from the market. So, mm -hmm. you know, as, as a clinician, I'm going to be a little bit worried with these newer medicines. Is this something I'm going to be answering for, you know, two or three years from now? What do you think about the safety of these newer products? Well, safety is it's enormously important for all medications that that are used for treatment of chronic disease. So for for um, statins, for blood pressure medication, medications that have to be taken over a long time, safety is critical. So I think the difference with these medications is that we uh, that two of them are really combinations of products that that we know a lot about that have been out on the market. Uh, for many years have been used in millions of patients, and we already have a large sort of understanding of what the tolerability and safety of these agents are. The other medication comes from really a better understanding of how to target therapies. So Lorcasrin is that one. It targets the 5-HT2C receptor. That's the serotonin receptor that's specific for appetite. There are seven subtypes of serotonin receptors, and they control lots of things besides appetite, mood, and, and many other things. The 5-HT2B receptor on the heart valve is the one that was giving trouble when the serotonergic drugs were used in the past. But this drug is so specific for the 5-HT2C receptor that it received FDA approval. It would not be likely to cause any adverse effects or, or safety signals. And in fact, the drug is, is well tolerated and has a very good safety profile. The other two medications, one of them is a combination of phentermine and topiramate. 
both of those drugs have been around a long time. Topiramate has been used in in more than a million women for migraine prophylaxis. The other drug is a combination of naltrexone and bupropion. We all know bupropion from smoking cessation and treatment of depression and naltrexone from for treatment of addiction. So those medications have a long track record. Uh, so I think the difference now is that we know we we know a lot more about how to target, and we also know a lot more about the safety of the compounds that we're using. So if I was to start someone on one of these medications, is that someone I should be seeing once a month for kind of to see how they're doing? Are these medicines I'm going to put people on for three months, six months, a year indefinitely? How am I going to operationalize them? Yeah, you no, you definitely don't want to write the prescription and send the patient out the door with a six-month return. What you want to do is combine the medication with a lifestyle intervention with a plan for doing that. And then you want to follow the patient up. And at two to four weeks, you should have the first visit. And then monthly thereafter, at three months, you need to make a decision. Is this medication working for this patient? And the usual goal is you want to see 5% weight loss by that point in time. And that's going to predict weight loss of about 8% in six months. So if patients can do that, the medication is working for them. You know, we don't really do a very good job of phenotyping patients for obesity. So for any of these medications, some patients don't respond, probably about 20%. So you don't want to continue the patient on a medication that's not being efficacious. So you see them back in three months and then make that decision. And then you would you may lengthen the appointments after that, but you still want to follow that patient up. I think you want to contract with the patient to be on the medication at least a year, and then you can talk about strategies for maintenance that don't involve that medication. But we know as long as you stay on the medication, your weight loss will be maintained. Now, surgery seems to become kind of a huge part of, you know, obesity management, especially in our our folks who are even bigger, who are more morbidly obese. Can you kind of talk about how that's evolved? Because once upon a time, it wasn't the safest thing in the world. Absolutely. You know, in our guidelines, we gave the strongest endorsement yet for bariatric surgery. And we really encouraged primary care physicians to be proactive about identifying patients who might need bariatric surgery to improve their health. So we want primary care physicians to identify patients and tell the patients about bariatric surgery and refer patients, not just sit back and wait for patients to self-identify as as wanting bariatric surgery. The advances in this field have been phenomenal. So it's largely due to laparoscopic techniques and much better training of our surgeons that we now have very low rates of perioperative morbidity and mortality. So the weight loss that is produced with these procedures is dramatic. So with gastric sleeve and gastric bypass, the weight loss is about 32% on average at three years. With gastric banding, about 16% on average at three years. And along with this amount of weight loss, we're getting a lot of improvement especially in glycemic measures. So 
some patients are able to be off of all diabetes medications and will go into what we call diabetes remission after these bariatric surgical procedures. To me, it's pretty remarkable when you look at some of these studies that you can actually cure diabetes. And, and you know, if, if we had a pill that would cure diabetes, more or less, we'd be given it all the time. But sometimes we're very kind of reticent to our patients who would certainly qualify for having a bariatric procedure, who are diabetic, who really have kind of a long and, and kind of troubled life ahead, kind of medical complication-wise. And I don't think we recognize that it can be a cure. Absolutely. You know, I feel a sense of urgency about patients who are diabetic, especially if they're younger, and who are struggling with their diabetes. And I think those are the patients that we really need to be more proactive about recommending bariatric surgery to because it can deliver such health benefits very frequently. Now, if we have people listening who are trying to figure out between the procedures, is is there one procedure that's better? Who should get a sleeve? Who should get kind of a, a ruin why? Who should get some other procedure done? Is there anything that we can kind of help people figure out which procedure would be best for them? Probably in the United States right now, we're doing about half and half sleeve and gastric bypass, ruin why bypass. The sleeve has some advantages in that it in terms of long-term nutritional uh, support, it will re- require less. You know, so the nutritional complications over the long term are less with gastric sleeve. So for younger patients, especially women, who might be, be having children in the future, I think the preference would be for sleeve. Um, but gastric bypass has advantages in that it has better control of appetite over the long term. Um, because the, there's, the procedure really delivers to the ileum um, food that, that stimulates the production of these gut peptides that are so important in promoting satiety. So the appetite effect is much better with the Y bypass. So, Dr. Ryan, in, in finishing up, if you had three recommendations to give to the average primary care clinician in the United States, what would be the three things you'd like us to start doing tomorrow in our offices? I think the most important thing for physicians is to see their patients in a different way. Obese patients are not there by choice. They have genetic risk factors that make them predisposed to being obese in this environment. And that other factors, maybe the medications they take, maybe stress, maybe life events like pregnancy and menopause have contributed to their body weight. And that weight loss is difficult to do, and it's not something that patients can always achieve without some help. I think that the primary care physician's job is to help those patients and to learn the skill set that's needed to achieve and sustain weight loss. So rather than three points, I just want primary care physicians to see their patients in a different way. Don't blame the patients for being overweight or obese. The patients are already blaming themselves. I think understanding the causes of obesity and how difficult weight loss is, especially weight loss maintenance, and having more empathy to these patients and owning the fact that they need to... It's their job to help the patients lose weight and keep it off. 
Where can people find the guidelines if they want to kind of read more? Where would you recommend they go to? You know, the, the Obesity Society website has the guidelines that are downloadable. We've already had about 30,000 downloads. There's a short executive summary of about 30 pages. And for people who want to know all of the background, 410-page full report. Donna, thank you so much for being on the show. Certainly, this is a critical thing that the United States is dealing with. And with your leadership, hopefully we can turn this boat around. It was my very great pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Dr. John Russell. For more information on this podcast, please go to ReachMD.com. Thanks for listening.